Amen. Guys, I'm going to jump in fast because we're in Jonah 2. And it's a 10-verse prayer. There's only 10 verses in Jonah. It doesn't even take up a whole page. And uh, this is week two of this series. And Jonah is a 2,600-year-old book um, that was referenced by Jesus often. And it is a very simple story, but it comes from a really complex genre of literature. And I'm not sure how I ended up with all these notes for just 10 verses, but I did. So we're going to like jump in and get going to it. Last week, we were in chapter 1, which gives us kind of a major chunk of the story of Jonah. God says, go. Jonah says, no. And God says, oh, that's what you're going to do. All right. And so as Jonah is on his route, running from God, he's supposed to go to Nineveh. He's running from Tarshish on a boat, running from the God of the sea on a boat, which is ridiculous. He's including other people in his rebellion. The sailors are getting put at risk because of his bad decisions. And God sends a storm. Jonah is sleeping through the storm. The sailors are trying to do everything they can to make the storm go away. Finally, and what we focused on last week, was Jonah faces God. He admits it's his fault, and he surrenders. And in this, we see that it is God's mercy that sends a big fish to save him, that the fish wasn't God's punishment. It was God's salvation. And so the big takeaway from last week is that we run from God, and God chases us. We run from God, and God chases us. And this isn't just the story of the first chapter of Jonah. It's not even the, that's the big takeaway from all of Jonah. It's the big takeaway from all of Scripture. And so I want to ask you, in the story of Jonah, it's a real simple story, not a lot of characters, who is the hero of the story of Jonah? Hint, it's not Jonah. It's not Jonah. It's God. God's the hero of the story. God's always the hero of the story. Jonah is not the hero. He's like the anti-hero. He's not the guy we're supposed to see and be like, we want to be like him. Jonah is considered one of the prophets of the Old Testament, but this book is different from others because Jonah is not a book about prophecy. It's a book about a prophet. It's a story about a prophet. And Jonah, you may not know this, is considered to be the worst of the prophets, and he's been considered that for most of Christian theology, okay? Um, Tim Keller, one of my favorite theologians, recently passed away, but before he did, he wrote a book called Prodigal Prophet. The whole point of the book is that Jonah wasn't a good prophet. Uh, all through Orthodox art for the last, Orthodox Christian art for the last 2,000 years, most of the time when you see Jonah, he's riding a fish at the bottom of the art, and mirroring Jonah is the devil also riding a fish. Okay, so that we don't like lump Jonah in with the good people. He's not part of like the good guys in scripture. He's not. Um, Jonah is not to be modeled. That's what we talked about last week, how they read the story of Jonah on the Day of Atonement in Jesus' time. And at the end of them corporately reading that story out loud, they would all make the statement, I am Jonah. The point of statement of the, the story of Jonah is that it's a warning. It's a warning. We are just like him. We need to see ourselves in him. We all run from God one way or the other, but God loves us enough to chase us when we run. And it's important to remember all that in the big takeaway when you get to chapter 2, because if you don't remember all that stuff and you just read these 10 verses as just a standalone prayer, it kind of sounds like a pretty good prayer. We're going to do that real quick. It won't take long. It's just 10 verses. We're just going to read it straight through without much commentary. Okay, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. So he continues for the next few verses to pray about all the trouble that he had been in, 
and he describes the trouble that he was in, and then eventually he cries out to God to save him. So real quick, starting in verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the floods surround me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. Verse 5. The waters surrounded me even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the mooring of the mountains, the foundation, the depths, the bottom of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever, yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. So after Jonah prays about where he's been, he finally gets around to remembering God. And in verse 7, he says, When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Then Jonah said, Jonah promises that if God, who's the only true God, saves him, if God saves him, then he will make sacrifices to God in verse 8. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. We agree with that. Verse 9, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And this is kind of the key verse, and we're almost to the end. There's only one more line. This is the key verse that most people focus on in Jonah's prayer. And they claim from this verse that this is a prayer of thanksgiving. And most commentators and pastors, because I've listened to a lot of teaching about Jonah in the last couple of months. I've read a lot about Jonah. Most people would say that this is just a model prayer of thanksgiving and gratitude. That Jonah's being thankful to God. We need to be thankful to God. So it's a model prayer. Then in verse 10, it says, So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So in the last verse, we see that God caused the fish to vomit Jonah up on dry land. Apparently, God did listen to Jonah, and apparently, God did grant Jonah's request. And so if we read this prayer out of context, we we think it's a pretty good prayer because the prayer was answered, right? Therefore, it's got to be a good prayer if God answered it. And I think most people you run across today would think that Jonah's prayer is a pretty good prayer. And the reason they think it's such a wonderful prayer is because they're either reading it by itself or they kind of read ahead in the story and they know how everything is. And so then they go back and they look at the prayer with all of that other stuff going on. But we know that's not how you read a story, right? You don't read a novel that way. You don't like, you know, read the middle chapter and then skip to the end and then go all the way back to the beginning and start. That's not how you read any story. And so we don't need to read Jonah like that. That would ruin the story and it can ruin this story as well. So we need to let the story of Jonah tell us what the story's trying to tell us. And the only way we can do this is by reading the story in context and in sequence. And so y'all have all seen this graphic of like the old lady and the young princess. Depending on how you look at it, it's either an old lady or a young princess. You know, turn your head upside down, they flip-flop. The picture changes based on perspective. And what I want to do this morning is kind of shift perspective on that prayer, that 10-verse prayer, Because I used to think that Jonah's prayer was a good model prayer. And I certainly think that everybody should pray prayers of gratitude. That's definitely something we're supposed to be doing. And there's nothing in the prayer that's like wrong or false. He's not a heretic. But I'm not convinced, and maybe I'm wrong, that Jonah's prayer is all that great. And in the last couple weeks, I'm thankful for a pastor named Jeremy Myers. I found him online, and he did a lot of research for me. And, and laid out a lot of stuff for me from a different perspective. You had to see the prayer a little bit different. And now that I've seen it, the way he sees it, I can't unsee it. It just makes too much sense to me. Because maybe there's a better explanation of this prayer. Maybe there's an explanation that fits Jonah's personality and the flow of the story a little bit better. 
So in order to find this, we got to look at the prayer in context. So we realize in chapter 1 that Jonah's all kinds of jacked up, right? He's got character flaws. God says go. He says no. Goes the other direction. And normally when God would give a prophet of the nation of Israel a message of fire and brimstone, hey, go preach my damnation on a city, they would have been excited to do that. Because every other time when the Lord declared a nation to be wicked, he was going to destroy it. Okay, he, that should have, he should have been excited to go tell these people, hey, y'all are in opposition to Israel, so God's fixing to kill you. So we wonder why he, didn't, he wasn't excited about that. Maybe he was scared for his life, but we're going to spend a lot of time in the next few weeks talking about why did he not want to go do what God told him to do. Um, but God doesn't take his disobedience really well. And so he sends a storm that about sinks the ship. And Jonah's sleeping downstairs while all the sailors are praying. And it seems in that moment that Jonah wanted to die, right? He tells them to throw him overboard. And so finally in chapter 1, the sailors do throw him overboard, ensuring that Jonah would get what he wanted because there's no way he's going to survive this, right? We're going to throw him out. He's going to die. He wants to die. This is the perfect solution. So did Jonah get his wish? Did he die? Well, we saw from the last verse, chapter 1, that it seems like he didn't, that the fish saves him. And if he did die, and we're going to talk about that just a little bit, then God saved him from his own death through a fish that swallowed him for three days and three nights. But this is key as we're kind of looking at this story today, that this is information that Jonah doesn't have. Jonah didn't know he was going to make it out alive. We know Jonah made it out alive because of chapter 1, verse 17. We know he makes it out. But Jonah, at this point, is still in the belly of the whale. He doesn't know that he's getting out of this thing alive. Um, so I want to reread Jonah's prayer with that context because once I did, I really reconsidered what kind of prayer this was. So verse 1 says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. So we find ourselves with Jonah in the belly of this fish praying to God. And this is key because remember in chapter 1, we saw all those sailors praying to their false gods while Jonah was silent. Jonah didn't pray at all in the first chapter. Jonah didn't want to pray because he knew he was living in disobedience to God. And when we're in rebellion against God, prayer is usually the last thing we want to do. And developing the discipline of prayer is hard enough, but when we know we're disobeying God, it makes it a lot harder. It hinders our process. So we see Jonah finally turning to God in prayer, and maybe Jonah has repented of his ways, and now he wants to restore his relationship with God. So let's see what he prays. Verse 2, he cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Well, this seems like a good start. It's always good to start a prayer with thanking God for everything that he has done. And so Jonah is here praising God for saving his life, keeping him from dying. But the second part of verse 2, it seems that like for a while, Jonah thought that he actually died. And I'm from the camp that thinks maybe he did. Maybe he did die. When it refers to the belly of Sheol, that's the Hebrew way of referring to the place of the dead. And you don't get to go to the place of the dead unless you die. And so some scholars think that Jonah actually did die, descended to the place of the dead, and then God resurrected him through that big fish. And that makes sense to me. Jonah either died or he came back, was very close, near-death experience. But either way, God saved him when a fish was the only thing that could have. Nothing else would have worked. And so we see a guy that wanted to die in the previous chapter, tells him to throw him overboard. 
But now that he's in the water, he seems a little worried about facing death, right? He's distressed. He's anxious. He starts crying out to God to save him. Chapter 1, we knew he was living in disobedience. When he was thrown into the sea, he realizes he might actually die while living in rebellion to God. And he really didn't want that to happen. So it gets a little scary. And death is scary for pretty much everybody. And he realizes that he's going to face the consequences of his sin. And so Jonah starts to reconsider. And again, remember, and we're going to talk about this a lot in the next couple of weeks, but it, we, we see it big time today. Why didn't Jonah want to go there in the first place? Why didn't he want to go preach for God to destroy the city of Nineveh? He had already done that with Sodom and Gomorrah. So why didn't he want to go? The rest of the prayer, I think, might tell us. Verse 3 says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surround me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. So Jonah expands on verse 1. He tells them what's happened to him. When he's thrown into the sea, he's about to drown. But notice that he doesn't accept any blame for his situation. He doesn't even blame his predicament on the, tra- on the sailors that actually picked him up with their hands and threw him into the water. He says that it is God himself that threw him into the deep. The sailors may have done it, but it was God's hand of discipline behind their actions. Then in verse 4 he said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. To be in the sight of God means to be in God's favor. And Jonah realized that he had broken that relationship with God. He had disobeyed. He had lost God's favor. But still, Jonah prays to God. And it says he looks towards the temple. And this is like today, Muslims look towards Mecca when they pray. Jews would have often referred to prayer as simply looking at the temple, looking towards the temple, because it was a place of prayer. And so Jonah continues to talk about himself and what happened to him in verse 5. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. So Jonah was either on the verge of death or fully experienced death. Again, he's in Sheol. That's not a place that humans get to go until after we die. He talks about weeds being wrapped around his head, which shows that he may have spent some time in water and been dealing with a lot before the fish actually came along and picked him up. And in verse 6, it says, He went down to the moorings of the mountain, the deeps, the very bottom of everything, and the earth with its bars closed behind me forever. There was no way out. He couldn't save himself. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So the reason Jonah is praying here is that he's thankful that he didn't die, and that is certainly a good thing to be thankful for. And maybe now that Jonah's life has been spared, he will be willing to do what God asked him to do in the first place, go preach to this town, Nineveh. Maybe he'll now pray for forgiveness and confess his rebellion against God, but we don't see any confession in this prayer. Verse 7, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Just when it seems like Jonah was going to admit that this was all his fault, repent of his sin, praise God for doing something wonderful, Jonah continues to focus on himself. And the only reason he thinks that God spared his life is because he prays good prayers. And we often hear about the power of prayer and the effectiveness of prayer and how much prayer accomplishes, and it does accomplish a lot. And I taught about prayer a few weeks ago from the book of James. And James says that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. But at this point in Jonah's life, was he a righteous man? No. He was way outside of what God wanted for him. So we got to remember that it's not the prayer that's powerful, and it's not the prayer that does the work. Prayer is not a magic spell to control God and get what we want. Prayer never does anything by itself. It's always God 
who does the work. And if it's God who answers prayers, then it's God who is powerful and provides for us and protects us. And again, Jonah's just focusing on himself and how good his prayer was rather than on God and what God wants. And there's still a couple of verses left of this prayer. Maybe Jonah will turn his focus off of himself and towards God, but in verse 8, he picks somebody else to talk about. He says, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. And again, at face value, nobody disagrees with that. That's definitely you know, in line with the message of the Bible. And I think that this is the part of the prayer where we actually see Jonah's heart. Because we've seen idols and false gods. That's what he's talking about, worthless idols. Where have we seen that in the story so far? Chapter 1, right? The sailors made prayers and sacrifices to their worthless idols. So when Jonah was on the boat with the sailors and the boat was going through the storm, what did the sailors do? They were calling out to their gods for help. And again, I agree with the statement that Jonah makes here. Idols to other gods are worthless. They do forsake mercy. But Jonah is taking the time here in this prayer to tell God why his prayers are better than those sailors' prayers and why God should honor his prayers. Okay, And I, I really, when you see the whole story, it really makes sense that that's what he was talking about in verse 8. Again, in chapter 1, we see that Jonah is unrighteous. He is outright rebellion. He is running from God. But in chapter 2, I think we see the root of Jonah's problem, and that is that he is self-righteous. Jonah is so self-righteous that he sits in judgment upon the sailors that were in that boat that he drug into all this mess. He's taking a stab at them and comparing them to himself. And he's saying, God, those sailors were so stupid. All those worthless idols, they can't save them, God. And I told them about you, and they prayed to you, and you and I both know that they're probably going to go back to their false idols. They're never going to learn. And when I read the whole story in context, that verse 8 jumps out at me. Because I want to say, Jonah, do you hear what you're saying here? Who are you worshiping? Are you worshiping yourself? Or are you worshiping God? Jonah talks about idol worshipers and how they forfeit the grace that could be theirs if they turn to the one true God. But I'm not really sure that Jonah understands grace by the time we get to chapter 2 in this story. God has kept this man alive when he should be dead. God has been more gracious to him than he ever could have deserved. But he's still not offering that grace to anybody else. And one of the commentaries I read, and it wasn't even about this prayer, but this is just true about the whole book of Jonah, that Jonah has great disdain for the Gentiles who practice idolatry. At the same time, he regards himself as one of the elite who worships the true God by means of the sacrifices which God has appointed. Jonah, as an Israelite, sees himself as superior to the idolatrous Gentile heathens. But what's really the case in the story? The heathens prayed. Jonah didn't. The heathens were eager to uncover sin. They were trying to get to the bottom of the problem to make the storm go away. Jonah wasn't. He was asleep at the bottom of the boat. The heathens wanted to practice their religion. Jonah didn't. The heathens had compassion on Jonah, but Jonah doesn't show any towards them. So by pretty much any standard, the Gentile sailor proves to be superior to Jonah from all that we have read in the first chapter. And yet Jonah still unabashedly tells God that he is somehow superior to these heathens. Not only does Jonah feel like he's better than these guys, but he also might be looking at what God wants him to do. He's supposed to go preach to the people of Nineveh. 
And it's as if he's saying, hey, God, look, they're idolaters too, right? They might and they might not do what you tell them to do. But even if they do, they're just going to go back to their idols. You don't understand them, God. They're, they're a hopeless cause. You don't need to send me over there. Nothing's going to change those guys. So I think in chapter 2, we just keep seeing Jonah being a problem. In, jo- in chapter 1, it's his outright rebellion. He is running from God. But even after he faces the consequences of his sin, in chapter 2, he's still rebelling because he's a self-righteous sinner that thought he was better than everybody else. And I think in all of our lives, we can be guilty of that. That there can be people that we view as hopeless causes. Even God couldn't help them, right? And there's probably people in your life who you think God will never be able to get through to. Maybe you're looking at this complete debacle of a situation in the Middle East with Hamas and Israel, and it's real easy to try to pick sides, and I'm certainly praying for Jerusalem. The Bible tells me to do that. But if you get to a point where you think there's one group of those people that are completely, God can't do anything with them, then you're falling into the same trap that Jonah fell into. Are there people that you think God loves less than you? Because I think Jonah did. And it's the feeling we have sometimes towards the people in our lives that don't know Jesus, people we work with, people we interact with. We feel superior to them because we know Jesus and they don't. And that's such a horrible attitude. And it's such a horrible representation of the gospel. The gospel has nothing to do with anything that we've done. We're only getting to go to heaven because God was gracious with us. And when we try to act like we earned it, it's going to turn people off to the message of the gospel. And if we treat other people as if they are less than us, why would they ever want to become one of us? And people are watching us. And I have enough friends in the restaurant industry to know that, like, the Sunday afternoon lunch crowd is the worst shit. Because the church crowd's the worst crowd at a restaurant. They're rude. They don't take care of their waitresses. They don't leave good tips. And that's true. And that's not good. That's a problem. And so when you look at your life, are you doing the same thing Jonah does? Because people are watching. People take notice. How you live your life and what you say matters to non-believers, and it can determine whether or not they're going to be interested in coming to church or listening to the gospel. And so we got to watch what we say, watch what we do, the attitudes that we have. They matter a lot. But Jonah's prayer keeps going in verse 9. We're almost at the end. And he says, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah continues to condemn the sailors. Remember, they sacrificed to his God too, and they made vows to him, Jonah 1.16. But Jonah is hinting that their sacrifices are worthless because they didn't know God as good as Jonah knew God. And he's also hinting that although they made vows, they might not keep them, but don't worry, God, I will. Jonah will. And look at what Jonah vows. He doesn't vow to obey God and go to Nineveh. Instead, he says, if you get me out of this, God, I'll go back to Jerusalem and I'll make a sacrifice. Apparently, he didn't remember uh, Scripture as well as we had hoped. 1 Samuel 15, 22, which Jonah knew. He knew this verse. He says, has the, Lord, as, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Jonah knew that God wanted obedience more than he wanted sacrifice, but Jonah doesn't talk about obedience, right? 
And Jonah may not sacrifice to idols, but he just didn't obey God. And God wants obedience more than anything else. And so Jonah closes his prayer saying that salvation comes from the Lord, which it does. And basically he is saying again, God, you have saved me from death. But when we look at this prayer in context, it reminds me a lot of the prayer of the, fa- of the Pharisees and the tax collector in Luke 18. J- Jesus tells a story about this self-righteous Pharisee and his prayer to God is, God, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. Thanks for making me better than him. I mean, that was that guy's prayer. And Jesus didn't like that prayer. And when I read Jonah's prayer in context, it kind of sounds a lot like that prayer. Jonah is the Pharisee in this story. He is so self-righteous that he doesn't see that he's done anything wrong, and he focuses his prayer completely on himself. And this is theme all throughout Scripture. You're either going to rebel from God in unrighteousness or self-righteousness. It's going to fall in one of those two categories. And I'm thankful for a pastor, Jeremy Myers. I talked about him earlier. But he did this word study that I think is pretty fascinating. He compares Jonah's prayer to all the other prayers in the Bible. And and Daniel 9, Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9 is a really good example. Daniel's prayer is full of confession and repentance. He thanks God, focuses on what God has done. There is a lot of him focusing on himself and his country, and he references all of their sin, not their goodness. But he puts himself right in the middle of all of that. He says, I am among the worst of them. And Daniel, the righteous man of God, puts himself in the same category as his nation of Israel, who were all worshiping false idols, And I think Daniel's prayer is a really good example of how we should pray. And if you look at the Psalms, this pastor Jeremy Myers did this word study, word frequency list. Okay, there are roughly 42,000 words in the book of the Psalms. And a little over 2,500 of those are personal pronouns. So 2,500 out of 42,000 are words like I, me, my, we, our, us. So it's only like 5 or 6% of the words. The majority of the prayers in the Psalms are of repentance or a confession of personal or national sin. But Jonah's little prayer only has 201 words. And 24 of those words are personal pronouns. That's 12%. Twice as many as all throughout the Psalms. And not one of those is in reference to repentance or confession. So much of Jonah's prayer, you need to know this, it comes directly from the Psalms. There are quotes in Jonah's prayer that came from the Psalms, which he would have already known and all the Hebrew people would have already known. And so we can compare the theology of Jonah's prayer with the prayers in the Psalms, and we see how quickly it looks like Jonah's prayer is really shallow. It's really shallow. It's really self-righteous. And Jonah focuses on himself throughout the entire prayer, his needs, his worries, what he has done, how righteous he is, and compared to these horrible sailors, how he's going to keep his vows even though they didn't, and how he'll go back and make a sacrifice to God. But in the book of the Psalms, the psalmist, they describe their deliverance, but even though a lot of the particulars are left out, they usually quickly turn it from their personal experience to how awesome God is. So in short, the Psalms are God-centered, And Jonah's prayer is self-centered. Jonah was selfish in chapter 1. He's still selfish in chapter 2. Jonah's been thinking about himself all the way through. And now God saved Jonah from the consequences of his sin. And he still can only think about himself. But I don't think we need to judge Jonah too quickly. Because I have to think about my own prayer life. You know, What do I focus on? 
do I start with praise and thanksgiving, or do I just jump right in with God to all the things that I need Him to do in my life, all the things I want Him to accomplish? And prayer is difficult enough on its own. We all need to get better at it. But when we look at these prayers in Scriptures, we see a theme. And for most of my life, most Bible teachers would make a model out of Jonah's prayer, and I don't want to do that this morning. Because the main prayer point of Jonah is that we're all like him. We all run from God, and God chases us. And I don't think his prayer is a model. It's just a warning of what a self-righteous prayer looks like. Jonah shows us how not to pray. Do not pray focused on yourself and your goals and your needs. Pray focused on God and what he wants for your life. And so to make promises to God in order to get what you want and to not be too quick to judge other people in your prayers. So Jesus told us that the same way we judge other people is the way that we're going to be judged. He told us that in Matthew 7. And so as we close this chapter on prayer with Jonah 2 verse 10, we see God's reaction to people like me and like Jonah that pray self-righteous prayers. Verse 10. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Again, it doesn't, the Bible doesn't call it a whale, it calls it a fish. And there's a lot you can talk about there, but I think the big takeaway and why we don't have a lot of information about the fish is because the fish actually obeyed God and Jonah didn't. The fish vomits Jonah onto dry land. Vomit, that's a harsh word, right? Nobody wants to get vomited anywhere. But I think it shows God's reaction to Jonah's prayer in the book of Revelation it says that because you were lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold, that God will vomit us out of his mouth. If we aren't one way or the other, God doesn't want lukewarm believers. And God's been trying to teach Jonah something this whole time, and Jonah's just not getting it. So again, we got these questions. The first one is, why did Jonah not want to go preach a message of fire, hell, and damnation on Nineveh? It's because he was self-righteous, and he knew God was going to take care of him. The second question is, why would Jonah rather die than do what God actually wanted him to do? He was, he was disobedient to God until he gets in the bottom of the sea and then he realizes, oh, I asked for this, but I don't want it. And then the third question is, what is God trying to teach Jonah? We have seen that God is sovereign in this story and so that we can expect for him to teach us a lesson in this. And I think the big thing we can learn from Jonah's prayer today is the big takeaway from the entire book of Jonah, and it is this. Again, we run from God, and God chases us. First, Jonah's prayer warns of us of spiritual superficialness, right, like self-righteousness. And I'm afraid that's kind of become the norm in our culture. And there's probably too much of that in my life and in the life of this church, and it has a lot of symptoms. That kind of faith relies on the wrong things, our background, our ancestry, our denomination, what position you have in the church, how much you know about the Bible, amount of time you spend or money you give to the church. It relies on all that stuff. And I think the faith that we have in our culture, it mimics more than it's an actual genuine faith. And we tend to only pray when we're in really bad circumstances. And it's self-focused rather than God-focused. And it's insensitive to the needs and concerns of all the other people around us that need God too. And it looks over your own sin and points out the sin in other people. So we need to be aware of that kind of spiritual shallowness that we see in Jonah. And again, in, in Genesis 3, the fall of man, when, when people decide to rebel against God, it happens in one of two ways. You're either going to rebel against God in unrighteousness, like Jonah did in last week. He just does the complete opposite of what God wants him to do. Or 
because he didn't do any of those things, he becomes self-righteous and thinks he's better than everybody else. And we all do one or the other. We're all like Jonah. But God still saves us just like he saved Jonah. God's method of saving us, just like Jonah, is often not the method we would choose. He would probably have preferred a dramatic search effort, but God didn't do it that way because Jonah's main problem was pride. And God doesn't save me usually in the way I want him to. And I know that believing in Christ alone guarantees me eternal life simply uh, for doing, for God doing it. I didn't do anything to earn that, right? And I'm not sure I would have chosen that. We, we like to try to add stuff to the gospel. We like to try to take credit for things that we do. But that's not really the story. That's not the story of the gospel. That's not the story of Jonah. That God has provided for men's eternal salvation by grace. We can't earn it. It's not about what Jonah did or me or you could do to earn it. It's simply because he's a good God. And we see here in chapter 2 that Jonah is saved from his own unrighteousness and his own self-righteousness. And he wants to do the same for all of us. And at the 11 o'clock today, we're going to have a baptism, and it's a pretty special one. And um, Jeff came to our Freedom Weekend last weekend, and to be honest with you, everybody, a bunch of people knew Jeff. Jeff's a stand-up guy. We know he's a great husband. He's a great dad. He's a great friend. He was friends to a bunch of guys in this, and he's Jared's brother-in-law. So a bunch of us knew Jeff, and we already knew we liked him. We were excited he was coming, and we weren't expecting him to, like, you know, confess meth addiction or anything at, at Freedom Weekend. We, we thought he was in a pretty good place. But over the course of the weekend and conversations and asking the right questions, and he talked about how he felt like his prayer was really disconnected from God, Jeff came to the realization that even though he knew who Jesus was, he had never made the decision to follow him. He had just never done that. And when I realized how, I mean, it, it's a big thing to turn to God at any point. If you're being unrighteous and you realize I'm doing all these things the wrong way, I'm going to start, that takes a lot of strength and courage too. But when everybody thinks you already have it, and you have to admit, hey, man, i got to go all the way back to square one. And I know I haven't even got to talk to Jeff about this, but I know when he called Jared, one of the things he said, and I knew this would be in his heart, is he was just like, you know what, I, I don't want you to think I'm a hypocrite. Because I've, like, gone to church stuff with you. I've helped you teach other kids at camp. I've taught people about Jesus. I just didn't know him till today. And that's a big thing to get over. And the thing that Jeff had to repent from was his own self-righteousness. He, he just didn't realize that he was trying to do it all in his own strength, and he had never laid it down and just decided to follow Jesus with it. And that's a big story, and maybe that's your story. We all run from God like Jonah. We either do it in blatant disregard, rebellion, we run the other way in unrighteousness, or because we don't do it that way, we think we're so good that God's doing himself a favor by saving us. And neither one of those is the right approach, that we need to lay all of that down in front of Jesus because he paid for all of us. Let me pray for it. Lord, thank you for everything that you're doing. Thank you for Jeff's story that we get to baptize him today. It's going to be so powerful. Now, thank you for the story of Jonah that doesn't show us what we should be. It shows us what we shouldn't be. That we see that he ran from you in his unrighteousness. He just completely went the other direction. But then he still somehow convinced himself that he was better than all of these other people who actually did pray to their gods. He thought that God was doing him a favor by getting him out of that situation, and, and we can fall tempted to feel the same thing, and it's just not true. You save us because you're good, not because we deserve it. So as we sing this last song and we go about our week, I pray that you would just remind us of that, that we are like Jonah, and you love us anyway.
We ask all of this in Jesus' name.